Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks for tuning in. There's a lot happening and a lot of great people dying. And somehow or other, if it's okay with all of you, I'm going to combine the two themes, uh, uh, the uh, sad deaths of Alistair Darling and Glenis Kinnock, two people who I knew in politics and to some extent outside politics, uh, and link that with some of the many things whirling around at the moment. Uh, So my opening reflections, again, if it's okay with all of you, will encompass quite a few things. Boris Johnson appearing in front of the COVID inquiry, Neil Kinnock and Glenis Kinnock and the potency of that duo. Then moving on to the current Labour leader, Keir Starmer, and his comments about Margaret Thatcher in his Sunday Telegraph article and why they worry me, but why his interview he gave simultaneously with the publication of that article on Radio 4's Broadcasting House was uh, much better. Then on to briefly uh, the BBC and the uh, axing of Newsnight in its current form to an altogether different form. Uh, Then we return, return, go to, because we haven't heard them yet, your brilliant questions on all kinds of varying themes, all of them brilliant. And um, before that, a few notices. First of all, uh, thank you for those of you who have emailed asking me for a signed label and dedication for uh, my latest book, Turning Points, Crisis and Change in Modern Britain from 1945 to Liz Truss in the Times, Books of the Year. Yeah, I've had loads and I'm going to get going with them this week. So those of you who've asked with some very nice emails about the podcast and the book and so on, I really appreciate it. And uh, for those of you who want to buy it as a Christmas present, please do email me, steverick14 at iCloud.com. Tell me who you're buying it for and what message you want me to give them. I'll do that on a label, post the label back to you. Uh, And the turning points, if you haven't got the book, are 1945, the Suez Crisis, the 1967 Abortion Act, and what Roy Jenkins called the creation of a civilized society, the price of oil quadruples in 1973, 1979, Labour wins three elections in a row, Iraq, Brexit, the state to the rescue in both the pandemic, which I'm going to be talking about in a minute, uh, and after the global financial crash, and then that stark apparent turning point between Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak just over a year ago. So it kind of guides readers from 1945 to now and hopefully contextualizes the madness we're all living through at the moment. Uh, so yeah, if you want uh, to buy that as a present, it's steverick14icloud.com. Email me with your address, with the name of the person you're buying it for, with the message you want me to put on a label, and I'll send that off to you, a sticker, not a label. And you can put it in the book. It's, it kind of personalizes it quite nicely. Some of you have asked me uh, to send you one of these for books that you've already got. I'll do it. I'll do it. But if it's okay with you, uh, please be patient. I'm going to prioritize the Christmas requests because there's a deadline looming for all of us called December the 25th. Um, But I will do it. And if I haven't done it, please email me and remind me early in the new year. But I'm going to Uh, prioritize these Christmas uh, present uh, labels for stickers. I don't know why I'm calling them labels. Uh, And on the festive scene, uh, we're live at King's Place, all of us, 
on um, December the 18th. Uh, that's a Monday, starts at seven, so it's a kind of civilized time. And uh, I'll go into more detail what we will be exploring in our time together that festive night. But clearly, we're going to look back at the span of 2023, a curious, bizarre year in British politics, and dare to look ahead to what will be a year of great political intensity, 2024, an election year, almost certainly. We'll need some drinks, we need to have some fun as we delve deep. And the tickets for that are on the King's Place website and uh, on the blurb for the podcast, wherever you get the podcast. Um, And uh, yeah, tickets are selling fast. I know people always say that, uh, but there aren't that many left. But Pre-pandemic, it sold out every time in a big hall. It's the concert hall near uh, King's Cross in London. And Paul McCartney always says his favourite words in the English language are sold out. Yeah, sold out is a great couple of words. And I mean, he does sell out in huge stadiums in Brazil and places like that at the moment. Right, God, I'm obviously going crazy at the end of this year, which we will all need to explore on that night. Yeah, another Christmas idea, sign up friends for the Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics or just tell them to subscribe uh, in the year looming, and that would be great. Uh, If you subscribe, it all comes automatically. And if you're on Patreon, bonuses galore. And I'll tell you what the bonus for December on Patreon will be uh, next week. So those are our notices. I'll tell you one of the many reflections I've had about Alistair Darling, who I knew quite well, um, as did many political journalists, and liked hugely and respected hugely. If you can compare the two really epic national crises uh, we've had in recent decades, the global financial crash and COVID, I just wish that Gordon Brown and Alistair Darling had been in charge when COVID erupted, as they were uh, when the financial crash took place. Because although the tensions between the two of them have in many ways been understated in recent days, for obvious reasons, certainly the participants don't want to reflect on some pretty tough, tense times in the light of um, Alistair's Uh, death, which surprised a lot of people, in spite of the important and significant differences between Brown and Darling, uh, not just over the financial crash, but how you responded in terms of public spending and so on, and, and the political strategy from that point on. It's one of the ironies, actually, that Gordon Brown was far more obsessed with media coverage than Alistair Darling, certainly uh, Alistair Darling's early political career. But by the end, it was Alistair Darling who saw a lot of journalists, and they tended to take Alistair's side in the internal disputes with Brown. But they were more complex and nuanced than that, and they were great. I mean, at one point, at the height of the financial crash, uh, Brown set up his own economic council, as a counter to the Treasury and, and, and Alistair's kind of fiefdom of the Treasury. Peter Mandelson, who was uh, much more on Alistair Darling's side, used to go around saying, why have Gordon Brown and Ed Balls got a sort of psychopathic loathing of the Treasury? But uh, even that wasn't quite right in terms of the divide. Uh, Gordon Brown and to a less extent, but to some extent, Ed Balls thought that uh, Alistair had become sort of captured by a treasury orthodoxy, um, and they wanted to counter it with his economic council. Like all efforts to counter the treasury, it failed. But on the whole, these very different characters who had been once close in politics uh, and in uh, their personal lives, uh, Alistair Darling and Gordon Brown, navigated the UK through a potentially much worse situation, which arose from that crisis. Um, And in Alistair Darling's case, as others have reflected on, I won't reflect further, uh, he brought a calmness uh, to a crisis that would have tested the nerves of anybody. And Brown brought the kind of restless, impatient, intellectual, 
experience of having been a chancellor, which was very challenging for Alistair, uh, dealing with a prime minister who had been a chancellor for 10 years and a shadow chancellor for five years before that. He had those range of contacts across the world and um, a very different sort of way of looking at politics. But together at certain points, it worked. And when those two left in 2010, Britain could have been in a depression. In fact, the economy was starting to grow again. And I suspect if their economic policy had been pursued, the irony of uh, George Osborne and David Cameron coming in with the uh, vow to wipe out the deficit within a single parliament, uh, I suspect Brown and Darling might have got closer to it because it was economic growth that was going to address the crisis, uh, not deep, deep spending, real-term spending cuts, which is what the UK got. And I just wonder sometimes, listening and watching the COVID inquiry, how different it would have been if those two had been in charge following events forensically um, from January 2020, uh, when it was clear that COVID was beginning to spread fast and certainly by February was beginning to rage across Europe. This is when Boris Johnson uh, went off to checkers however many times he's going to tell the inquiry by the time you hear this some of you he'll have been at the inquiry however many times he claims he went back to number 10 those two would have been working around the clock uh, in different ways uh, Gordon with a sort of kind of terribly nervy intensity Alistair more calmly but they would have uh, been uh, dealing with the situation, getting ready for the situation in the UK from, I suspect, early February. In contrast, it's very interesting, Boris Johnson uh, knows how to spin a case. And in the build-up to his appearance at the inquiry, uh, he's got uh, kind of sympathetic editors. The Times ran a front page on Saturday, Boris's defence. Uh, there have been quite a few columns about how it's all very well, in hindsight, uh, making judgments about what happened. Uh, but these politicians, Boris and others, were uh, facing it at the time and having to make decisions. But that is far too generous. And I suspect it's not a generosity that would have been applied retrospectively had everything gone wrong if, say, Brown had been in charge when COVID erupted. By the way, you know, even though now everyone is saying how fantastic Alistair was, and deservedly so, in 2010, you read the editorials about Labour's economic policy and all the rest of it. I mean, he was being dismissed as um, David Cameron and George Osborne were being hailed as the great uh, saviours of the British economy in most of the newspapers now saying uh, what a significant figure Alistair Darling was. And to Darling's great credit, I, I was with him on um, at the Labour Party conference, uh, the evening uh, it broke, the Sun was switching its support from Labour to the Tories. And uh, Alistair, who by then had fallen out badly with Gordon Brown, still Chancellor, Gordon Brown still Prime Minister, was furious. He just said, the bastards. And the timing was, I think, the day before Gordon Brown's speech to the Labour Party conference. And so for all the tensions, they were still in it together to revise a phrase deployed by others in a slightly different context. And yet they didn't really get the kind of build-up to Boris Johnson's appearance at the COVID inquiry that Johnson is getting in some of uh, his newspapers, uh, which still sort of worship at the altar. And there is this theory about, oh, yeah, no, it's all retrospective. We didn't know any of this at the time. Well, we did. Uh, certainly we had the evidence in Europe. And I remember hearing uh, George Osborne more alert to developments and with a capacity to see sometimes which way things are going, popping up and saying, what's happening in Italy now will happen to us. And I think the thing that damns Boris Johnson when he claims that 
we more or less locked down at the right time and all the rest of it, is the speech he made in Greenwich in February uh, 2020. Uh, now, this was when COVID was moving fast towards the UK. It was probably here. Lots of people, do you remember, you could bump into people saying, what should we do? Should we go to football matches? Should we go to the rugby? Should we go on a train? There was Johnson. This was, you know, before the sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm going to the rugby, I'm shaking hands, I'm, blah, 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 I'm kissing everyone. Blah, blah, blah. Um, so in February 2020, this is a bit of what he said. Uh, he was worried. The irony is, too, he was talking about the, 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 the horrors of barriers going up between countries. And yet his Brexit was all about barriers going up between Britain and Northern Ireland, between the UK and the European Union. Trading now is much harder with him and Frosty's uh, deal. But anyway, so that's another irony. But he said, when barriers are going up, and when there's a risk that new diseases such as coronavirus will trigger a panic and a desire for market segregation that go beyond what's medically rational to the point of doing real and unnecessary economic damage, then at that moment humanity needs some government somewhere that's willing at least to make the case powerfully for freedom of exchange, some country ready to take off its Clark Kent spectacles and leap into the phone booth and emerge with its cloak flowing as the supercharged champion. You know, this is quite extraordinary. Fears about coronavirus beyond what's medically rational it's triggering a panic with the implication that the panic is wholly beyond reason. And this kind of British exceptionalism there in a paragraph of a speech that the UK alone will somehow be immune from this thing and will take off its Clark Kent spectacles and leap into the phone booth to become the supercharged champion. Well, soon, way too late, he was also announcing a lockdown and limits to travel and all the rest of it between borders. There was, from the beginning, a complacency and a view of Britain as somehow immune from a panic. Uh, and, you know, uh, kind of uh, what is medically rational, as if he was in any position to judge. And I think that kind of condemns it because by March the 13th, of all, many of the other witnesses were saying, number 10 were wholly unprepared. Uh, many of them thought they were, uh, to quote one of the officials, fucked on March the 13th. Um, and it was still then a few more days before he were to lock down. And that in itself, beyond, <laughs> forget about the fact that he repeated all of this again in the autumn. Uh, condemns him. Uh, and yet, you know, when he resigns, uh, it's a column for the Daily Mail, um, you know, there's still talk of him returning, although I don't think it will happen, uh, and so on. Whereas Brown and Darling presiding over a global economic crisis in the same way that coronavirus was global, avoiding a deep depression, avoiding people losing deposits. Um, throughout that period, Brown was subjected to endless internal coups, people trying to get rid of him from the Parliamentary Labour Party and so on. I do find it interesting that in the sadness of death, kind of recent history changes and the universal praise being handed out to Alice was partly because, you know, the sadness and the shock and so on. But it wasn't there then. He did get a better press than uh, Brown. But as I say, the two of them, in a way, fell together in 2010. The way the past is perceived changes constantly. And in a way, a more vivid example... Oh, by the way, before we leave Alistair, lots of people have talked about his humour. And I remember him uh, telling me one of the things that uh, he had to handle with Gordon Brown first before other countries were immersed in the global crash of 2008 was the near collapse of Northern Rock, which began in September 2007. They both of them worked around the clock wondering what to do. And, you know, and, and anyway, Northern Rock did not 
go bust. People did not find they couldn't get their money out and all the other things that people are terrified about. He said to me once that um, he just had to get back to Edinburgh. He's got a lovely house. And as you'll have all read, or many of you will know, he's got a fantastic wife and family. Um, just for a weekend break um, before further intense discussions about what the heck to do with Northern Rock in the longer term, public ownership and all that kind of thing. So he went back and it was a kind of Saturday, I think. And he said he switched on the taste. I'm going to watch some live football. And Newcastle were playing, and they were then sponsored by Northern Rock. So wherever he turned in his brief moment of escapism, he saw the Northern Rock emblem on every shirt of the Newcastle player. And he thought, there is no escape um, from this uh, crisis as Chancellor. But he always responded to crisis with good humour and, uh, as I said, a calmness that I was always kind of almost astonished by when you met someone in the midst of great storms that makes the kind of tribulations of journalism so bloody trivial. And he was so calm. And I said, good counter to Gordon and the two of them together. UK had the right people at the right time. COVID, Johnson and some of those around him who were too scared to challenge. I mean, one of the good things about the inquiry is you do find he was being challenged. Ironically, actually, you see Dominic Cummings certainly challenging him. Dominic Cummings was working on the assumption he was meant to be running the country. Now, he famously has fallen out uh, in a terrible, colossal, vivid way with Matt Hancock. But actually, Hancock and he were on the same page about the need to lock down more quickly. Although I think Cummings questions whether Hancock was quite as assertive about this at the time. Michael Gove comes out of it quite well, pushing for lockdowns with a great intensity and determination. But anyway, we are left with this uh, figure um, who, I mean, the, the nightmare was seeing the mistakes being repeated two, three times, uh, as if the past hadn't happened at all. I was, you know, deeply saddened also by Glenis Kinnock's uh, death. I mean, she's been ill for a long time with Alzheimer's. And over that time, I've seen uh, Neil Kinnock occasionally and uh, for lunch. And he, when you see him, he's fantastic. I mean, he was looking after her and couldn't get out very often. He was utterly committed still. When I heard that she had died, it made me think again about how what happens um, is not what we think happened. We see things differently at different times. So, you know, Glenis and Neil were an incredibly uh, powerful couple. I don't mean by that in wielding power. They just, in British politics, there aren't many uh, couples who have that sort of presidential aura, you know what I mean? Kind of the Kennedys with their wives or whatever. Um, but in the build-up to Neil Kinnock becoming leader in 1983, they kind of did have that aura. Uh, the media hadn't turned on him at that point. It was clear he was going to win the leadership contest. When she appeared with him, she too could light up a stage, even when she wasn't uh, speaking. I remember seeing her for the first time in real life at the Durham Miners Gala, which I was reporting for the BBC in the summer of 1983. It was just, I think it was just journalist students, I think, uh, working for a local radio station. And I was asked to cover the Durham Miners Gala of 1983. And you know, I sometimes for Patreon subscribers do um, a cinematic uh, elections. Uh, this was another of these cinematic occasions. Labour had just been slaughtered in 1983. The leader was Michael Foote, and Michael was still leader at the Miners Gala. The contest was being played out. And the three key political guests were Michael Foote, the leader, about to leave the stage uh, in that respect. Tony Benn, who had been such a forceful figure, still the hero of the uh, Durham Miners Gala, and Neil Kinnock, about to be leader, 
who had uh, not voted for Tony Benn in the 1981 deputy leadership contest. And there were the three of them on a cold August day on the stage together. Um, they had had so much interaction in different ways, and yet were going in different places. Michael to write more books, having had the toughest possible time as a Labour leader. Tony Benn, who Michael would say, and so would Neil, had been the cause of some of the toughness, challenging Dennis Healy for the deputy leadership, but not getting it. And then he had lost his seat. So he was there, not as an MP. He came back later. And Neil, who looked as if he was on course to be the next leader. And Glenys was with, was with him. And she looked absolutely fantastic. And the two of them had a natural a kind of rapport, a kind of mutually and supportive presence. Uh, you could feel it that day. Um, I didn't know either of them then, didn't for many years to come. Um, uh, but it's really interesting. That photo that almost became defining of uh, Neil Kinnock holding Glenys's hand and then slipping and nearly falling into the kind of sea in Brighton, on Brighton Beach, uh, became almost a symbol of his doomed leadership for years to come. It was shown again and again, you know, when he lost in 87, when he lost in 1992. Actually, it distorts everything of that uh, period, because I say they were a sort of very dynamic, charismatic couple up to the leadership uh, contest and him winning it. And that photo was taken on the day of probably his biggest triumph. He hadn't been leader at that point. He was about to be crowned that evening. And the symbolism didn't really work on the day because he was about to become leader with a very big majority over Roy Hattersley. And he appeared very commanding that evening. He had just won. He, it was that famous speech when he said, you know, 1983, never, ever again. Anyway, I got to know both of them uh, much more recently and used to go out for lunch with them and the observers, uh, William Keegan. And I even once or twice managed to catch uh, kind of legendary political journalists like Ian Aitken, who was political editor of The Guardian. And she, Glenys, was there as well. And her humour, perceptions of the current political situation and the past, not least the traumatic period of Neil's leadership, were fantastic and she was great and she I mean she laughed a lot he made her laugh it was as if they'd only just met it was a fantastic couple but that glamour was taken away from them when the media onslaught started after he became leader and that's when that photo became deceptively potent. He's explained many times since. He only fell because Glenys was wearing new shoes and she was about to trip, so he held on to her and then fell. But it was used as a symbol um, afterwards, and yet it happened before he became leader, when he was seen as a very glamorous person in politics. He had even appeared on Michael Parkinson's legendary chat show. It doesn't happen to opposition people very often. So I think it's, you know, both with Alistair Darling, and with Glenn Skinner, I mean, it's always really sad. And of course, everyone reflects in a positive way, but uh, it's a reminder also about what we choose to see in politics is not always what we see, if you know what I mean. And, you know, the recent past with the dying of people who have been so prominent in it, Glennis, of course, unlike Neil, became a minister, um, in in the final years of the New Labour era. Um, Neil never was a minister. He was a European commissioner. Um, but I've never met a more suited couple. At Cardiff University, when they met as students, they were known as the power and the glory. Um, uh, he was president of the union, I think, students' union. Um, and... She was so engaged. You know, some I'm told uh, quite a few of the current political leaders and so on don't talk much with their partners. Um, 
when Neil's leader, God did those two talk, and subsequently and before, they were absolutely as one. And uh, yeah, uh, what a what a family. Just one other thing. Um, one of the things I discussed with Glennis used to be an avid watcher of the kind of 24-hour news and so on. And I remember one conversation where she had become the, uh, more critical of the BBC, and I think it was quite interesting this week that the BBC announced, uh, in effect, the scrapping of Newsnight in its current form to return to a, a discussion programme and debate and, in inverted commas, newsmaking and entertaining interviews. My heart sinks. I mean, the decision on Newsnight, uh, in its current form, I can partly understand. Um, the viewing figures are low. Um, I don't watch it very often, and I'm an addict of daily news and current affairs, especially more than current affairs. Uh, it's been very good on politics. Nick Watt often has uh, good stuff on politics at the end of the day that others haven't picked up. Mark Urban is brilliant on international affairs, but I, I kind of don't feel drawn to it. Um, so I can understand why they took that decision. But where my heart sinks is this replacement. First of all, you know, as we've been talking about here many times, the BBC, you can argue whether it's biased to the left or right. I don't think it is. But it is really biased against letting items breathe. And they see the success of podcasts. They know the success of podcasts is partly about letting things breathe because with their own podcasts, some of them do that. But here is Newsnight. First of all, they lob off 15 minutes, so it's only half an hour. And newsmaking interviews and debate. Now, so the poor sod who edits this thing, we be unless they're very assertive, and they really need to be assertive, I'm tempted to apply for the thing myself, uh, will be under huge pressure each night to get a newsmaking interview, uh, in inverted commas. That will take up, if you're going to do it, remotely seriously 15 minutes then there'll be a discussion and there'll be huge pressure to create a bit of a stir with this discussion you know like question time which is now unwatchable as they seek to get a few clips on twitter and i, I did uh, record it the other day because i wanted to see what andrew neil was saying about everything uh he got a total of a he was the, the most articulate in the panel and he got about four minutes in total oh yeah we better uh, get oh god and people on twitter are saying we're, we're left wing so we better get julie hartley brewer or isabel oakshot on um oh and then something happens during the day so we've got this panel of three for a debate uh we've got julie hartley brewer someone from the telegraph someone from the guardian but then something else has happened we better get that person in as well so then it's four oh and we better not miss something else so we'll add another item at the end of that discussion so we've covered everything in case i get bollocked for not covering something and suddenly you're in this rushed madness. And if anything of light surfaces in such a, in inverted commas, debate, the presenter will say, well, that's really interesting, but we've run out of time. Thank you all very much. And off we go. Um, you know, the other programs feel very racy, Politics Live, and that's on, I think, for 45 minutes. And it has, it crams in too many items for the debate and sometimes too many guess this is just half an hour you can't develop anything fresh and interesting unless you have an editor brave enough to say right one night we'll run an interview for the full half hour i will have a, a panel of two who will co come up quite regularly to debate and discuss um and you know but they, I'd, I'd be amazed if they are brave enough to do any of that so there we are. Yeah, what a lot going on. I could carry on going on for far, far too long. So I think we need enlightenment now from all of you or quite a few of you. So yeah, a reminder, if you are interested in joining in our never-ending discussion, never-ending debate, or to get a sticker for a Christmas present for a friend, uh, not any, I'm not going to sign any old Christmas present, uh, Turning Points, uh, my latest book, just get in touch, steverick14 at icloud.com, steverick14 at icloud.com.
so to your questions uh, for now sorry i've got loads have come in uh and uh, forgive me if i don't get to yours this time uh, but hopefully i will over time i want to thank uh, caroline morgan and susan lintop for alerting me and therefore all of us at the cooperative that lee rowley the new housing minister the 21st housing minister this week um uh, and our uh, cooperatives minister to watch when we started watching him he wasn't a minister someone tipped him uh i think i don't it was a, a one of the live shows watch out for lee rally i said I'd never heard of him he was in the government that week well he's now speaking at a conference on uh the housing crisis and how to solve it he is clearly a genius a titan and um we can only await houses being built affordable rented houses housing that meets the labor demands now lee rowley is in charge so thank you yeah speaking at a big conference on housing uh we need to yeah we need to watch um anthony wilson says loving the podcast as ever as i make the commute from plymouth to exeter having moved here in october all right nice uh, an interesting move I'm also loving the access all areas pass of being a new Patreon subscriber. You're moving in the right directions, Anthony. I don't mean your house move. I mean towards Patreon, a far bigger leap than your move from uh, Plymouth to Exeter. Uh, yeah. So, oh, he, uh, Anthony has worked out from Spotify how many minutes he's listened to the podcast this year. 3,615, nearly an average of 10 minutes a day. Well, that kind of doesn't make it sound all that much, Anthony, 10 minutes a day, does it? You know, kind of. Anyway, I promise you, the duration's not going to go up too much, although I did reflect on quite a few themes today. New listeners, it's normally just one theme from me, and then over to all of you. Yeah, so Anthony, so I've asked this before, so sorry if I haven't responded, Anthony. What do you make of the theory the current Tory policy amounts to nothing more than scorched earth, i.e. deliberately running everything down so badly that Labour's plans for growth and renewal are effectively scuppered from the start? No, I don't see it that way. I think what the Conservatives are doing, i.e., um, you know, there aren't many with power or leverage, but what um, Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt are doing are trying desperately to pull levers to narrow that opinion poll lead. They are fighting for their political reputations, their political lives. And part of Sunak's weird behaviour, like with, uh, you know, boycotting a meeting with the Greek Prime Minister, is desperation. Waking up and seeing those Labour poll leads um, is a kind of desperate uh, thing. Now, I mentioned Labour police. I've forgotten in the introduction I was going to reflect briefly on Keir Starmer's speech to the uh, Sunday uh, Telegraph uh, this week, an article, uh, not a speech, uh, where he kind of hailed Margaret Thatcher as well as Tony Blair and the patriotism of Clem Attlee. Uh, but the Thatcher one got the headlines uh, for unleashing Britain's entrepreneurialism and all the rest of it. He doesn't need to do it. Maybe he chooses to do it. He doesn't need to do it even for the Sunday Telegraph. Because when Labour leaders start hailing Margaret Thatcher, um, what they do is begin to clear a path for the revival of a right-wing Conservative Party, even as it moves towards its immediate doom. When Labour leaders concede the amount of ideological ground they do to endorse or praise Margaret Thatcher, it becomes much easier for a Conservative Party having been slaughtered to begin to embark on that path once again. After all, they say, look, Keir Starmer, the new Prime Minister, has endorsed her. Uh, we are feeling once again vindicated in our ideological attachment to Thatcherism. And it does something else as well. It blocks off Labour making the connections between what happens to voters in their lives and the policies and ideology that arise from it. In other words, it's not coincidence that sewage is being pumped into Britain's rivers and sea. 
it's not coincidence that um, trains are overpriced and in total chaos. She, of course, didn't do that privatisation, but John Major did it to please the Thatcherite wing. It's not coincidence that the energy market is in total chaos. It's not coincidence that indiscriminate tax cuts are nearly always seen as a good thing. And remember, although Liz Truss wasn't being Thatcherite, she was being kind of more Reaganite, Truss and Sunak worshipped at the altar of Margaret Thatcher literally during the leadership contest. Sunak went to uh, Grantham where the, and kind of uh, knelt at Thatcher's statue. Liz Truss dressed up as Thatcher. So for a Labour leader to endorse that figure, the Sunday Telegraph readers won't kind of say, oh yeah, Tony Blair used to do it, but I haven't got time now to explain the different context in the build-up to 97 and the different political character of Tony Blair compared to the current Labour leadership. Um, so I don't know why he felt the need to do it. But then when he was on Radio 4's Broadcasting House on Sunday, uh, he said, well, you know, because he was asked about this, because this was the inevitable headline from the piece. Uh, and he said, Thatcher was a great political teacher and she had a clear mission for government. So did Blair, so did Attlee. Um, and and, and that's, that's great to recognise that. She was a brilliant political teacher, as we've discussed here. And she did have a mission. It wasn't as clear as mythology suggests, but uh, certainly the early phase of monetarism was pretty clear by the late 70s. Um, but that's different from praising the substance of the mission, which the Telegraph piece did. And in the end, I mean, Labour are 20 points ahead at the moment. They don't need to cut off all the space. The other thing was to say the Tories haven't made the most of Brexit benefits and so on. Um, there aren't any, and he knows that. Why block off the space to argue that the Johnson-Frost Brexit was a disaster? Anyway, um, uh, I said I'd mention it. So, you know, but, but the Broadcasting House interview, fine. The article conceding too much ground to Thatcherism and those who follow her, because we are living through the consequences of the moat, should be a gift to Labour. But if you, once you've endorsed it, there is no space to attack it. Back to your questions. Yeah, the ongoing debate about the DUP. Uh, as you know, Canon Paul Arbuthnot, who's based in Dublin, but originally from Northern Ireland, follows the DUP closely, has always detected expediency, well, always, in, in recent times, at the top of the DUP. Sees it now to the point where he's optimistic about the power vacuum being addressed in Northern Ireland. Now, uh, our French correspondent, uh, Dominique Joule, has challenged Paul at certain points over this in our never-ending discussion on the Rock and Roll Politics uh, podcast. And she's responded and said, I agree wholeheartedly with the Reverend Canon Paul Arbuthnot when he states his belief that something appears to be happening in relation to a shift in the DUP's position of the last 18 months of maintaining its boycott of the Northern Ireland Assembly. Whilst the DUP has steadfastly and firmly advocated its own particular ideology during this time, the reality that the Windsor framework will not be altered in any way seems to be drawn, dawning on some. Having backed themselves into a corner, it has indeed fallen to Peter Robinson to provide political cover for Geoffrey Donaldson. A further unpalatable reality for the DUP is that the alternative to no functioning Northern Ireland government is direct rule from Westminster. Given the likelihood that there will be a change of government after the next election in the UK, the potential of a future Labour administration is also likely to focus the minds of the DUP leadership. I sincerely hope that the Reverend Canon Paul Arbuthnot's optimism is well-placed because all the people in Northern Ireland deserve so much better than the ongoing collapse of their entire social support systems. Um, so, yeah, there we are. Uh, Dominica, Jewel and Paul Arbuthnot, with differing views of the DUP, have come together in their optimism. Although I think Dominica argues it's more out of necessity than perhaps uh, Paul would. 
Rob Roy says, I really like the podcast, which I usually listen to while walking my dog in the local countryside here in, God, how do you pronounce it, uh, Rob, the Charente, France? Uh, Dominica will know. Uh, the Charente, is it in France? Anyway, he says, I noticed that you bristled slightly at being described as the elder statesman of political journalism. More than bristled slightly, Rob. But quite seriously, in your time in that field, what changes have you seen? And to what extent were they in response to politicians themselves? Well, there's a whole podcast to be done on that, uh, even though I'm way, way too young and irresponsible to be an elder statesman political journalist. Yeah, it was a very nice thing. Uh, the, the turning points was in the Times Books of the Year, and it was a lovely uh, likes to be included in a great review from the increasingly legendary Patrick Maguire, who writes an unmissable column in the Times. Anyway, but he did make the mistake calling me the elder statesman of political, uh, I don't know, columnist or journalism or something. Uh, when you know, I'm still doing one man shows at the Edinburgh Festival, average age 25. Um, so I've no intention to be an elder statesman for four or five more decades. Um, but, it, you know, political journalism has changed in the time I've been one. There's a whole podcast, but I need to think it through, Rob, more carefully. I mean, the, the cliches are obvious. Social media is uh, transforming political journalism as we speak. Um, I think for the better. A lot of people think for the worse. But I think the dominance of the newspapers uh, before that, they're still very powerful in my view. Um, look at the Forensi and the Tory party over who owns the Telegraph. These papers are powerful. And it was interesting seeing, you know, papers like the Times, who the BBC tend to regard as kind of like them, impartial. You know, really pushing out Jeremy Hunt's lines on the autumn statement, uh, and so on. But so the proliferation of outlets has been extraordinary. Podcasts. We're still coming to terms, I think, with with podcasts. I know there are a lot of them now. Um, but they are incredibly empowering for journalists uh, because uh, it is a really intimate and fulfilling way of engaging with people. Uh, and we all share this interest in politics and making sense of it all. And it's I, I, that's exciting, you know. And I gather there are one or two other podcasts in the political field uh, that have made a few uh, waves. I think the proliferation is a good thing and not a bad thing. Even Twitter, even now, uh, semi-ruined by Musk, uh, it, it's better to have it than not to have it. In broadcasting, well, there's been, of course, there's far more of it. The thing that, you know, is depressing me, I mentioned it about Newsnight, has been uh, the decline of any sense of purpose at the BBC about what their distinct role is and you know, say this kind of misjudgment about cramming things into half an hour or, you know, got the joy of having Laura's Kumbas, but I don't blame her for it. But, you know, the hour on a Sunday, God, what we would all give to have an hour on a Sunday. About seven guests. I don't, I'm an addict and I don't bother watching that either. And, and it's because there are too many. So you know what the questions are going to be and how limited the space is for anything to develop. And, I grew up, I mean, you're all too young to remember this, but people like Robin Day and uh, Brian Walden and people like that, they were kind of very, they loved politics and were fascinated by it and had a curiosity. I mean, they had egos as well, especially Robin Day, but they were absolutely curious and and quite often were given 40 minutes, 50 minutes to do an interview at peak time. IT, not at peak time on ITV. Brian Warden was midday on a Sunday. Got a decent audience, I think. Maybe not. Uh, but certainly the BBC felt not just a patronising responsibility, but the kind of a seriousness of purpose, you know. And, and of course, it got decent audiences. It also got young people watching. The really interesting thing about podcasts is a lot of young people are choosing for this kind of long-form format. Um, and the BBC kind of think, oh, yeah, you've got to get young people, got to get young people. Uh, let's get a comedian on the Laura Coonsberg programme and and let's cram in another well-known celebrity and then we'll give six minutes to X and two minutes, to, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And I bet they don't get many young people watching. 
So that's happened in recent times, post John Burt, actually, who was director general until I can't remember when he went, but um, kind of turn of century stuff, uh, 2001, 2002, you could see a kind of confused what is the purpose kind of thing. And now I don't think the question is posed very much, actually. I heard uh, the new head of News Current Affairs at the BBC, Deborah Turnus, talking on the Today program about this Newsnight thing. There should be no awareness of... Because these people haven't broadcast themselves, they don't feel the rhythm of broadcasting and how it's seen in a way. I know she said, we're following what viewers want, but you see whether you actually are in practice. Anyway, I could go on and on. Now, some other great questions. I've even got uh, uh, one about two very well-known people and whether they're going to be starting up a new political party and yeah uh, lots of things uh, uh, uh someone two people actually pointing out um hugh carr and patrick martin that when i on the patreon looked uh, no no it wasn't on patreon it was on the uh, regular weekly podcast on the rise of the populists um I didn't include looking at these sort of TV personalities, uh, the kind of deified president of Ukraine, uh, Zelensky. And it, that is a really interesting case, actually, of someone who in some ways was finding power quite overwhelming, understandably, being a comedian. Um, it doesn't quite fit the theme of last week's podcast, but it's worth looking at and remembering uh, that background when reflecting on on his kind of deification, which is clearly about partly about courage and the horror of being invaded. But it is an interesting point, and there were many others. So, what? Here's the pledge. I'm going to do this as a pledge. Um, there'll be a bonus later in the week after post Johnson and the COVID inquiry, uh, maybe, yeah, let's do it, shall we? So I'll have time to read out a few more questions then. So keep them coming in, keeping the, keep the uh, sticker requests for turning points if you're giving it as a present. Book for King's Place, and let's carry on following all the twists and turns. We've got a lot to make sense of in this cold, bleak midwinter. Thanks so much for listening. Have a good time. See you all soon. Bye.